0: Stephen. (laughs) Thank you so much, Coral Union. That was amazing. What a privilege to be here with you today as we consider our God and His power and a bag of chips. I'd like to invite you to turn in the pages of Scripture to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to read from Matthew 17 to just frame... Our time in God's Word together. So you find Matthew chapter 17 in the Bible of your choosing, whether it be leather bound or an electronic version or on the screen. I'll be reading from the New International Version. And so, the 17th chapter of Matthew, an occasion of Jesus' miraculous power and his miraculous words starting in verse 14 When they came to the crowd a man approached Jesus and knelt before him Lord have mercy on my son he said he has seizures and is suffering greatly he often falls into the fire or into the water I brought him to your disciples but they could not heal him Oh unbelieving and perverse generation Jesus replied how long shall I stay with you how long shall I put up with you Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive out this demon? Well, he replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to There and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you, even me, a bag of chips. Let's pray and ask God to bless his story in us today. Father, thank you very much for your love for us and for this time that we have to share. Whether we come here as our regular worship home, whether we're students, faculty, administrators, and staff, or community members, or maybe guests, maybe we feel this place is home because of days gone by and we're alumni, any way we find our way here just now, we claim the promise that your spirit is here ahead of us and that just now as we ask it, you will come into our hearts and you will move in us. Thank you for this. In Jesus, we praise your name. Amen. It is a delight to be here, to look around the room and see college roommates and professors of days gone by and uh, students that I have taught uh, in the past and, um, it is a, it is a privilege to be able to be here. Today I am uh, a member of the alumni. I uh, some 30 years ago. It feels like it, it feels like this should be pronounced in the year of our Lord <laughs> 1987. Uh, I graduated. I know what you're thinking as you look at me now. You're, you're wondering what? Did you graduate at like 10 years of age? What how could that possibly be? And students, here's the thing. Someday you, too, will be somewhere on a stage and making a joke about how much younger you are than you look and you still just said you're 40. So it's good to be with you. I remember my first few days on campus. I was a sophomore. I had transferred here. I was a sophomore coming back from a student missionary year, and I got here a little bit early so that I could get a good job and arrived a couple of weeks early. That first week, I knew hardly anybody, but I knew Pam. Pam was a friend from high school. So Pam and I were hanging out one late afternoon, and she introduced me this particular day in my memory. She introduced me to a young man named Tracy, who had become a very close friend. Tracy, well, anything particularly crazy or weird or on the prank, end of the activity scale that would occur, you should just look around and find Tracy because he was involved somehow. didn't matter if he denied it. He was somehow involved. This particular day, Pam introduced me to Tracy. First few minutes of my relationship with Tracy went a little like this. We decided we were going to go for a drive in his car to St. Joseph, maybe get some ice cream or something like that. He was the one who had a car. I did not. Pam did not. Pam thought, okay, I'll go to the room. I'll get a jacket. I'll do my, what I need to do. And so while she was gone, Tracy, with a twinkle in his eye, said to me, okay, now here's what we're going to do. <laughs> it's a, yeah, this is our first conversation together. And so here's what we're going to do when Pam gets back. I'm going to go to the room to get my car keys. Yeah, he already had his car keys. He was going to come. We were going to walk our way across to Meyer Hall. In those days, the ends of the wings of Meyer Hall were not enclosed. They were open. You remember, those of you that are elderly like me. They were open, wide open. In fact, the stairwell was to open air at the end of the... And, and you could go during most times of the day, you could go through those end doors. And so he was going to go up to the third floor and go through the end door. And what his instruction was to me, when we get there, what I want you to do is position yourself just right so that Pam is right underneath the stairwell, right off the edge of this, Just per, And she comes back about this time, and I'm... I'm, I'm I, don't, I know her. She's my friend. I'm not even sure I... Trust you. I don't know what we're doing exactly, but somehow, with a sly little wink, and on we began to walk, and we got here. He went, got to the, uh, to Meyer Hall end of that particular wing. He went up the stairs and and in, and so I, I, you know, we got to talking, and I kind of got in the right position there. And there was something about this that I knew I needed to be ready to move, though, right? And then I heard a click. I heard the click of the door at the top of the, of the staircase, and just out of the corner of my eye, I saw it. He had gotten a very large container filled with water, and everything, he was, this was all worthwhile to him. This was a great use of the day, and over the railing, he had tipped this. I saw it just in time to be able to get out of the way as Pam absorbed the falling water. And this was Victory. This was victory for Tracy. did not matter that now we were delayed because she had to go back and change. It was victory. In fact, I think he would have been willing to just do it again. Okay, now I'm going to go get back. I forgot my keys. Let's go. I don't know if you have a friend like this, someone when uh, pranks occur, you wonder, where are they? Or if they were ever to step up to you and tap you on the shoulder and say, (laughs) so I have an idea. You'd have to think a little carefully about whether you're going to follow along. That's what this moment in our story, in the passage of Scripture, we're going to spend our time locking in on. That's what's going on. A sly wink, a whispering voice. So I, so I have an idea. Shh. Come with me. And two, sneak out of a crowd of 600 you find it there in First Samuel. Turn to First Samuel. We will just land here, stay here, First Samuel chapters 13 and 14, but we're right where those two chapters join up. In fact, in most of our Bibles that divide the verses up, the last verse of the 13th chapter will be included with the 14th chapter. That's where we're going to start, kind of in the middle. So, the 23rd verse of 1 Samuel 13 says this, now, a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistines' outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So, okay, 600 soldiers, you would want to know, encamped, huddled. If you look at them carefully, you could tell they're a little scared. They're not happy about what all is going on. They're a little stuck. They don't know what to do. There is trouble in the countryside, and they are wedged and locked in between different outcroppings and outposts of the enemy, and they've got nowhere to go, and most of their countrymen have fled, and they are stuck. 600 of them, led by King Saul, but King Saul's young son, probably about 30 years of age by now. Jonathan moves to his armor-bearer. By the way, armor-bearers typically in those days were apprentice soldiers, too young to actually be a fighting soldier. And so they would apprentice as an armor-bearer under some warrior, and this warrior, Jonathan, what an opportunity. So possibly a teenager, 14, 15 years of age, hears the whispering voice of the one he is to follow turn to him and say, hey, All right, let's just follow my lead here. We're going to slip out. Keep in mind, Jonathan's somebody that eyes would be on. Somehow, they slip out. Now, you need to understand the context of what happens then in chapter 14 by just understanding a little bit of chapter 13. You recall, backing well up, that Saul is the first king of Israel. The Israelites pled with God, We want a king, give us a king. And so, So God did, he was anointed by Samuel, God did give them a king. Saul, head and shoulders taller than everyone else, he became their king, but it was all along God's plan that he would continue to lead his people through the wisdom and the input of his prophet, Samuel. Well, about this time, as chapter 13 begins, the Philistines are aggressively on the attack, and badgering, pestering the children of Israel. And there are 3,000 soldiers that Saul has, and he takes 2,000 of them and gives 1,000 to his son Jonathan. So 3,000 soldiers, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. And Jonathan, Jonathan observes what is going on around him, the difficulty, the trouble, and he can't sit still. Jonathan decides he's going on the attack, even though he has the smaller army. By the way, it is interesting to note, as you watch King Saul so regularly when it seems like God might want to call us to action, Saul is doing nothing. Even though he has the largest group, he has the position, he has the authority, he's not found doing much in the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel. Jonathan goes and successfully attacks the enemy, in fact, so much so that this creates quite a reaction on the part of the Philistines. You find it there. Just turning back a page into the first 1 Samuel chapter 13, you find… Verse 3, Jonathan attacks the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines hear about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Here's what happened. Jonathan attacks, and he is successful enough to really get the attention of the Philistines. Saul, ever the opportunist, decides to send out a press release about what he has done. And by the way, be ever so fearful of leaders who are happy to take the credit of others. Jonathan, having been victorious in this one campaign, stirs up the Philistines, and I don't know if you've had this moment where you feel like you've been successful, but the success is followed on by something that now becomes very desperate, because the Philistines raise a large army. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel and with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands of the sea against 3,000. This oppressive military comes their direction, and Saul, as is What God had arranged with Samuel, Saul is taking seven days to wait, and the prophet is to come and sacrifice before God to decide what God would have them do. How are we to proceed? And Saul waits, and he waits, and five days go by, and six days go by, and the seventh day is going by, and he is now in a panic. And by the way, his 3,000 soldiers are not terribly believing either, and they're beginning to drift off. They're beginning to slink away out of the sh- out into the shadows and into the thickets and the caves. And they're about this time. There are only about six hundred left. The six hundred we'll scroll forward to into the fourteenth chapter. And Saul is desperate and afraid, and fear causes us to do bad things. And he decides on that seventh day. All right. Well, s- prophet of God is not here. I- I'll do it. I will. I will do the sacrifice. a difficult lesson to learn, but it is always better to leave to God what God is supposed to do. And Saul does not and decides he will take God's part and do it himself. And once not you know it, on cue, seventh day, last few moments, as Saul is making the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, I got, I got, uh, you, you weren't here. Well, you were to wait to the end of the day. Well, you, if you've looked around, we've lost a whole lot of our, we're down to a fifth of our original size of an army. Now, have you looked around? Do you know what's happening? Yes, but God is who was going to lead us. Now, by the way, Saul, your line will not be preserved as the royal line of Israel. There will be another who will come instead because of your faithlessness. Well, this large army of Philistines, they gather in just the right places, they split into three groups, and they cut off the supply trails, all of the passageways that they may be refortified, or that even other soldiers from other towns might make their way to join this now 600 desperate soldiers. They're cut off. They're surrounded. They are aborted. And they're hopeless. It's just even a little bit worse than that if you look in the 19th verse of 1 Samuel chapter 13. It says this, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make spears and swords for themselves. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, sickles sharpened, their farming implements. They were actually redirecting the economy of Israel into Philistia because they couldn't even sharpen farm implements. So this 600-member army, the Bible will say, has two swords. Uh, We could take a turn into the metaphor of the desperate nature of what it is like to be God's people and have no sword. And one wonders in some of the difficulties we have if maybe we should reacquaint ourselves and not go to the enemy to get sharpened. But to be sure, we have our own sword. So, verse 22, on the day of the battle we're about to describe, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. That's it. I don't know if you've had... A moment to look around, to glance around this grand country of ours or the world around us, whether it's to keep an eye on the weather or national discourse, or I don't know about you, but it seems to me there couldn't be a better time for God to come and introduce love into our world. And we are his instruments for this, right? We are the warriors, right? We are the army of God, right? Right? Does it feel on occasion like the army has been drifting to caves and elsewhere, and it's a little lonely? And by the way, we barely have a sword among us, but maybe God has a plan anyway. Maybe God has mustard seed-like opportunities in you and me. Maybe, maybe all God needs is a bag of chips. I know this is a torturous thing to bring up at a time like this, I got a large. I thought there might be a few of us here, so I got a large, a large bag of chips. Uh, it's not necessarily a healthy snack, although I did specifically shop for vegetarian. And I wonder if God and this bag of chips could say to our world exactly what needs to be said. Could it be, I don't know, you may feel desperate and small, just like you would have to feel if you're this armor bearer, as Jonathan leans over and says, follow me. No, this is going to be good. Follow me. By the way, get my shield. Let's just sneak out. Let's slip out. I wonder if they sneak out because Jonathan has a suspicion that his father might put his plan to committee, but they sneak out don't tell anyone. Here's his plan. Follow me into this battle now. In the 14th chapter, so Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, there in the second verse, under a pomegranate tree, and migrant with him 600 men. Verse 4, on each side of a pass… That Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistines' outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozaz and the other was Senna. On one cliff to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Giba. And on this one toward Michmash, this is where the, the Philistines had an encampment. And so here's Jonathan's plan. Check this out. This is great stuff. Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Come, come, now, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men and perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Did you get the plan? By the way, if you're the armor bearer, you're going, um, yeah, you have a sword. But uh, so here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan. We're going to go and we're going to attack the enemy, just the two of us. <laughs> you and me. And perhaps God will show up. Wait, how sure are we on this perhaps thing? Because as I've usually used that word, it means maybe, maybe not. What you're saying is, eh, 50-50. Let's see. When was the last plan you stepped out in faith to address for God that was a perhaps plan? Perhaps God. Perhaps God will show up. Often we like to say that faith... Is believing in what we cannot see. And some would actually suggest we should modify that and go a little deeper and say faith is believing in the presence of contrary evidence. As if to say, perhaps God will show up, and probably not. But we should do this thing. Let's go. Follow it up, Jonathan, with these words For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do you understand what he's saying there? This mission that we are going on, we're going to need to be saved from. When was the last time I stepped out and said, look, I'm about to do something that the only way we see tomorrow is because I get saved. Something steps in and saves me in this. But you know, and you'll notice it throughout the pages of Scripture, the hardcore true believers of God are willing to go alone or with just one other into desperate circumstances, challenging moments, in a world where everyone is shrinking back and there seems to be no love anywhere. To step in and say, I will be, I will be the message of love to a world that might chew me up and spit me out. I don't know how this is going to go, but perhaps, perhaps God will show up. Because he can do it with many, sure, he can do it with many, but I've noticed he loves to work through bags of gyps. He loves the moment when he works through few, the flimsy and the small, the underprepared. Interesting that Jonathan will choose a not-yet-warrior. I wonder if it's because he knows this uh, idealistic young man, this 14, 15-year-old, this young person is just crazy enough to go along with me. I have a, a vivid memory as a, a young undergraduate student of Dr. Wilkins. He was, a, he was a popular professor in the chemistry department coming to me. I don't know why. I, don't, I, I really had not done anything that would cause him to say, oh, that's my guy. Not, nothing about this, but he came to me one day and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm starting up a Sabbath school class and I'm wondering if you would partner with me. And it was one of those first moments that anybody reached out to me like that. And I have no way to account for what that changed in my life. I wonder if maybe part of God's recipe for doing the impossible is that we partner together with somebody possibly outside of our own generation, maybe somebody who hasn't learned yet what happened back in 64 and believes that perhaps God will show up and He can save by many or by few all that we lived in a place where you could reach out to somebody half your age or twice your age and partner all that we knew of such a place oh, we're in that place right now are we not so this young warrior wannabe says hey if that's the idea you're going with if that's if that's the plan let's do this thing G- imagine the words here This armor-bearer says in verse 7, Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer says. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. And that could be translated, I am with you as closely as your heart is with you. When we are scaling, as it will say in a few minutes, up that cliff, hands and feet, and your heart is beginning to pound because you can hear a guy at the top, of that little overhang clanking his sword on his hand, going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. As your heart beats, that's my heartbeat. That's how close I am with you on this plan. By the way, young warrior, never underestimate the power of the person who comes along beside someone's idea and says, yes, let's do this. It is every bit an incredible form of leadership to follow on and build momentum. I wonder how many things would never have occurred if somebody hadn't been willing to step up quickly first. Well, he lays out even further plan. It's craziness. Jonathan says, well, come on, we'll go over, we'll cross over to them, and we'll let them see us. This is my thinking, is we'll, we'll go out, we'll go, Hee-hoo. we're going to show ourselves to them. I think, I think the whole surprise thing is overblown. The high ground, overblown. What we're going to do is we're going to go, hey, 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 we'd love to have a little bit of a fight with you guys, and we'll see what they say. And if they say, hey, we're coming down to you, then ah, that's not such a great thing. If they say, hey, you guys come up to us, that'll be our sign that God is in this plan. Wait, what? <laughs> so what you're saying is we're going we're to ruin our chance of surprise We call out to them, and our sign that God wants us to do this is if they say, hey, you guys do the work of climbing up here. We're not really wanting to come down, and then we can have this fight, and we'll know exactly where the two of you. You do recall I don't have a sword, and up they go because that exact thing happens, and Jonathan, with a glint in his eye, not certain he will last the day because only perhaps God hand over fist, feet, two go up that that incline to a waiting group of soldiers, and the Bible says that God does show up on that day, and with one sword, Jonathan and his armor-bearer fell 20 ready, rested, armed Philistine soldiers at the top of that plateau in a space no larger than the floor of the sanctuary." And then the real miracle of the story occurs because God has been waiting for someone who won't just talk about faith but will actually stand up in faith and moves out onto what they cannot see. And there is a low rumble and a tremor in the ground that will be called an earthquake and it so confounds and confuses the Philistines that they begin to attack themselves ridding the Israelites of their foe, and this shaking ground, this earthquake, catches the attention of the 600, well, it's actually 598 soldiers there under the trees as Saul says, wait a minute, something's going on, armor up. Could it be that if you or I stepped out together in faith into that impossible, into that perhaps God will choose today, if we would step out in that way at this time, is it possible that the sleeping, paralyzed saints would wake? And Saul says, by the way, count up. Somebody's missing here. I wonder if he knew who was missing, because he knew his son Jonathan like I know Tracy. Something's happening here. Where's Tracy? Where's Jonathan? And as they watch and they begin to join the battle, they need not do much of anything because God is doing it. Crazy to think how many times in Scripture God waits to do what only He can do until we do this little tiny triggering move of going, okay, I'm yours. This amazing miracle summed up in the last few verses i want to share today verses 20 through 23 read these words in the 14th chapter of 1st Samuel then Saul and all his men assembled had all, and all his men assembled and went to the battle they found the philistines in total confusion striking each other with their swords so number 1 the act of the armor bearer and Jonathan in faith ends up igniting the church of god Number two, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Wait, time out. Did you catch that? Some of the Israelites who had fled the army had not only gone to hide in caves, which will be mentioned in a second, and they'll come out of the caves and rejoin God's people too, but some of them, as this verse says, had actually gone over to fight in the army of the Philistines. Yeah, mercy is right. How many of you right now could close your eyes and imagine someone you love who you wish were sitting next to you, but they are not? Because they have either gone and run to the hills and the caves and they've said, I've had enough. If this is what church is, if this is what God is, if this is what a world looks like, if there is a God, I'm not sure, I really, the church, I can't do this thing. Or worse, that you suspect they've actually gone over to the side of the enemy. Is it possible that God intends and wants to move and shake the earth out of your willing action in such a way that could call home some of those we've lost? Hmm. It makes me think of this bag of chips, because I'll be honest with you, I'm not certain I'm up to the task. I I was thinking about it. Uh, I had a buddy send me a video clip and and, uh, tell me a story. It's about a guy named Abe Davis. He uh, was doing some research in his PhD program. Well, first of all, it starts with this notion. Everything in here, everything you can see or touch in here, scientists suggest to me until I hear, have one come tell me otherwise, it's moving right now. It's, everything's moving a little bit, imperceptibly so. In fact, if, if you would take a high-speed camera and focus it on my wrist with a, with a powerful light and just film my wrist right now and then drop some clips from it, if it's a high-speed enough camera, what you would notice is that my wrist is pulsating. Like this, we put our hand on there and we can feel it, but to just look, you can't really see that. But with high-speed photography and dropping out certain clips, you could actually see the movement of my arm. And this caused Abe Davis to think, hmm. Everything is moving, and it's affected by other things. What about this? Sound in waves creates motion and movement and vibration. What if we were to take something like a bag of chips... And were to situate it just so with a high-powered camera that takes fast speed images so that we can slow them way down. And what if, what if I were to shout at the bag? It, it actually vibrates. The truth is, they say that even sound waves on some minuscule level, if it were a rock here, make the rock move. But the high-speed cameras we have and the We can't make it, we can't look back and see the movement in a rock, but you could in this flimsy. In fact, the flimsier the better, right? So, this kind of cellophane like bag, it would shudder and shake. So, here's his thought What if we did that, captured it on film, broke it down, and ran it through an algorithm in a computer? Could we reinterpret the movement of the bag so that we could create something near the original sound? And just to be sure you're following him here, he's not saying that the bag will make noise so that it will mimic my noises. What he's saying is my sounds will make it move and we could interpret those movements back into the original sound to move from sound waves to light waves back to sound waves. Fascinating. So check out this clip. Here I am. And on the bottom left, you can kind of see our high-speed camera, which is pointed at a bag of chips. And the whole thing is lit by these bright lamps. And like I said, we had to be very careful in these early experiments. So this is how it went down. Three, two, one, go. Mary had a little lamb. Little lamb? So, this experiment looks completely ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, I'm screaming at a bag of chips, and we're blasting it with so much light, we literally melted the first bag we tried this on. (laughs) But ridiculous as this experiment looks, it was actually really important, because we were able to recover this sound. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't recording sound from the bag. He was recording movement. Could it be that far more than the words we would preach, your life is meant to move? That if flimsy... But submitted bags of chips like you and me, if we were in contact with the living God speaking at us, if we were to submit ourselves that somehow the world around us has hardwired into them the algorithms required to interpret God's voice bouncing off of you. And what if the only thing stopping the world from hearing his voice is that I stay on the shelf? Could it be that God has a plan to speak love into this world and that it involves you with no further preparation than you have right now except the submission of your heart to a God that loves us. And maybe you should whisper a crazy idea into some younger or older person near you, hey, what if we go? Let's just go. Because God can save this world by many or by few. And amazingly, he seems extra thrilled when it is few because then we don't get confused of whether it's actually that the chips are talking. Would you pray with me? Father, we come from all over to this place. As students, we come from all over the world. As professors, administrators, staff members, we come from all over the world. As community members, we have landed here from many places around the world. And now those of us who are alums, we come back. From all over the world to this place, this moment in time, and maybe it is that we could be challenged that as we go out, you intend to speak into the world around us, but you choose for some insane reason to do it by bouncing your message off of us. So, we, we plead for forgiveness for those moments. We have hoarded to ourselves your message, and we claim the promise that you might perhaps show up. Just for that much certainty, we will go to show the world who you are. Thank you for your love. In Jesus we pray. Amen. And so, if you would like to respond in some meaningful way to what God is doing in your life and this message... From 1 Samuel chapter 14, I encourage you now to stand with us as we sing hymn 618, the first, third, and fourth stanzas, hymn 618, Stand Up for Jesus.